Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to welcome Adi Bitter today. Um, Adi was my teacher when I was a Shlucha Mayanot about 10 years ago, and we've been in touch ever since. And she is an, a phenomenal teacher and an amazing mentor and resource for everything related to, you know, in-depth Torah learning. So um, I'm honored to have you here with us. And I'm really excited to explore a topic that we just finished a course on. Um, we did an in-depth halacha course on the topic of Mitzvah Asi Shazaman Grama, and we felt that it would be valuable to offer our listeners um, just like an overview um, discussion about this topic and specifically how it relates to the mitzvahs that we do on Pesach, um, since that's coming up. So, <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. And Adi, maybe we should start by talking about um, what is mangrama? Like, what? How do we define what is what are mitzvahs mangrama? How do we define that? And um, where is the source in the Torah for this concept of woman being exempt from mitzvahs mangrama? Uh, okay, sure. So I'll just start out saying I'm certainly not like an authority figure in any of these things, and I apologize in advance if I misquote something. Um, mitz. Okay, so the words mangrama. I mean, the Hebrew term mitzvot aseishas man uh, graman means positive commandments, meaning the Torah is split up into mitzvot that we, uh, things we're supposed to be doing, things we shouldn't be doing. So mitzvot aseir are things that we should be doing. And the mitzvot that we should be doing, shazman grama, means that cause, that time somehow has a causative effect in terms of these mitzvot. Um, something about the time of day or the day of year um, is something that uh, impacts when people would be obligated in those mitzvot. Um, in terms of the source of women's exemption from those mitzvot, so there isn't a direct biblical source for that. There's no pasuk in the Torah that says women don't do time-bound mitzvot. Uh, it is taught in the Mishnah, um, and the Mishnah just, I mean, the Mishnah states quite plainly that um, the, neg the things people, the prohibitions associated uh, with Judaism, even if they're time-bound, apply to everybody, whereas the, the positive commandments uh, that are connected to uh, time, time in the sense that it applies to all people, um, like time of day as opposed to time, uh, something specific to the woman's personal life, um, things connected to like objective time are things women are exempt from. Um, the mission really just brings it down very matter-of-factly. Uh, the Gemara then uh, asks, how is it that we know that women are exempt from time-bound mitzvot? Uh, and it's something that I, I, I think that people who have generally heard about this concept of women's exemption from time-bound mitzvot often have these um, elaborate or not so elaborate narratives as to like why it's that way. And of course it's that way, et cetera. And all these things connected to concepts related to gender, et cetera. Uh, roles that people assume that women should or shouldn't have. Uh, but the Gemara doesn't go in that direction at all. The Gemara is really very straight up about it in terms of a very technical way that within our tradition, it's been learned out that women are exempt from time-bound mitzvot. Uh, it's this, you know, they, they, they ask, like, how do we know this, that women are exempt from time-bound mitzvot? And they say, well, we learn it out 
um, from tefillin. Uh, since women are exempt from tefillin, which is a time-bound mitzvah because it does not apply at night, so two women are exempt from all time-bound mitzvot, which leaves leaves the obvious follow-up question of like, but wait, we haven't established that women are exempt from tefillin. How do we know they're exempt from tefillin? And they correlate between um, tefillin and Talmud Torah because of the Pasuk in Shema, which we say that mentions both of them in a similar context. Um, and since women are exempt from Talmud Torah, it's learned out um, just within our Masora that women are exempt from uh, tefillin as well. And then by extension, all of the mitzvah right there, the Gemara doesn't go into how we know women are exempt from Talmud Torah, but in a different um, in a different passage in the Gemara that is addressed, but that, that's beyond the scope of the mitzvah context. I think it's interesting that you said that the Gemara doesn't actually go in the direction of talking about um, some of the philosophical or, you know, sort of spiritual reasons, let's say, for why women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs. Um, and some of the later, like, you know, Rishon and they do do that, right? We'll see, like, the Vudraham, I think, is the first source where we see, like, some sort of, like, reason given for why women are exempt from them. And then we have some other people, you know, more modern um, sources that seem to discuss it. Um, and I guess I- I'm curious what you... What- like what you would say the reason is for that. Like why does the Gemara sort of take just a, sort of a very technical approach while only later on um, and like later sources do we see any discussion about some of like some other, I guess, logical reasons for why that would be the case? Okay, so I mean the mission, the Gemara is really pretty technical about it um, because I think that, fun, well, it's an interesting question of like uh, why it's formulated as it is. Uh, it's actually also really interesting. I mean, I I gave I gave that category of what misfortunations magrama means. What ends up falling into it are things like spirat um, haomer, shaking a lulav, like all the holiday related things, um, and also uh, the specific let's say kriyachma by by uh, the third hour of the day, and um, some very specific things. There are a lot of exceptions to this rule of things that are time bound, but are actually women are chayev in them. Like all of the positive mitzvot connected to Shabbat are time bound, but women are chayev in eating their seudot um, and lighting candles, etc. cetera. Uh, also the mitzvot say connected to uh, many of the other holidays like Pesach, which we said hopefully we'll get to. And, um, you know, Kiddush, which I didn't even mention in regards to Shabbat, Havdalah. There are really a lot of time that women are high of. And so it's interesting, uh, Rav Chaim Navon points out in an article um, that uh, that if you count them up, especially if you count up the rabbinic mitzvot also, women are actually high of in more mitzvot than they're patur from. And if you look at the list of mitzvot that women are exempt from in general, um, like writing a Sefer Torah or Brit Milah or you know, Talmud Torah, uh, each one for different reasons, uh, the, you know, the, the time-bound mitzvot comprise only around half of the list of mitzvot women are exempt from. So Rav Chaim Navon raises the, 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 I mean, I might be misquoting, but the way I understood his, his writing there, is he raises the, 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 the thought that it's interesting that when you have a whole group of women being, you know, mitzvot that women are exempt from, I mean, about half of them fall into this category of being time-bound mitzvot. And we also have all these other times what women are high of in. Uh, it's kind of this question of like, well, what's going to be the rule and what will be the exceptions to the rule? 
And ultimately the difference there is, well, a rule explains about half and then the exceptions you would need to explain each one separately. So it does seem pretty clear that at least by the time things are codified in the Gemara, that we do have this Masora. Uh, I mean, even before from the Mishnah, we have this Masora that women are exempt from time by mitzvot. But considering that there really are like as many exceptions to the rule as things that fit with the rule itself, it actually seems to me very like straightforward that the rule that the Gemara gives really is rather technical. And I think that the desire for later uh, voices within our Masora to give explanations as to why that is, explanations that kind of feel more relevant or contemporary and not as technical, just comes from this basic human need to kind of understand and make sense of, of our system, um, which obviously that's something we want to be doing. And the different voices that have addressed this, I, I think, are coming from their cultural context. Um, I think each of them, and I'm not familiar with all of them, therefore, that come to the top of my mind, I think each of them really have their own value in terms of um, giving us insight into things we could be focusing on to become, to, be, like, to become better people. But something that I like to keep in mind is that fundamentally, like the, the exemption is a technical one and it is a halachic reality and like it just is what it is. And all of the reasons given later in Hebrew, those are called ta'amei ha-mitzvot. And ta'am is like a word that means flavor or seasoning. Um, and the example I usually give is that, you know, chicken is chicken or tofu is, is tofu, whatever you want. And like whether you season it with um, curry uh, or you season it with Italian seasonings, uh, it's still, it, it's still, you know, the, the protein source itself has the same protein qualities to it and if a person eats it like that's what's going to be going into their body and the the seasoning um you know it adds flavor and some people might like some flavors and not like other flavors but whether someone prefers curry chicken or chicken with italian seasoning fundamentally the same um grams of protein are going to be going into their body when they eat that chicken um, and i think similarly in terms of these tamayha mitzvot um, I, the way I think of it is like, okay, like the exemption is there. And, and the reasons that are given by later generations are like those spices. That's the Ta'ameha vote. They give flavor. Some flavors we like, some flavors we don't like. Uh, but fundamentally, the exemption is there. So whether we feel that a specific Ta'am, a specific reason that was given historically feels relevant or irrelevant, that doesn't change the reality um, of our chiyav. Like I know Hadassah, you just mentioned, the Abu Darham, he, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically uh, speaks about women's exemption being somehow connected to the fact that when she's married, we wouldn't want to have any conflicts between the woman uh, meeting the needs of her husband and the woman meeting, you know, the needs, as it were, the, the stipulations of God. Um, and that, you know, I, I especially in terms of this specific formulation, I think that, thank God, I think many, most women today do not feel this sense of um, subservience, the way that Abu Darham puts it to, to their spouses. You know, I don't think most women feel like if they were to want to shake a lulav, that that would come at the expense of them being able to fulfill their uh, responsibilities to their husband in terms of whatever the expectations there might be. Right. Um, but even, with, uh, even like with that, there's still... Um, that doesn't, A, that doesn't mean that now we're going to say that any woman who's in a marriage in which it doesn't feel like she's subservient to her husband, now she has to go fulfill mitzvot asesheshman grandma because it's not relevant to her. And we're also not going to say that a woman who's single does not have, you know, that this doesn't apply to her and that she needs to be doing mitzvot asesheshman grandma because the exemption is still there. That being said, I think that when um, I, I did like, first of all, I, I think two things about these types of reasons. Um, 
One is that uh, in as much as in our culture today, um, I think for most of us, that type of notion of subservience to the spouse that would stand in the way of mitzvah performance feels like pretty foreign. Um, I, I still very much value that sentiment that like, like investment in marriage is really important. Like when I think about like Stephen Covey's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people um, and the message, like one of his ideas there is that if you, his metaphor for getting things done is he has, you know, big rocks and little rocks trying to fit them into a box. And if you put in the little rocks first, then the big rocks start kind of jut out. Now in the winter is um, citrus fruit season here. Uh, I assume just not only here, but, uh, you know, if I want to put the fruits into the fruit bin in the fridge, if I leave the pomelos for last, there's no way they're going to fit. You have to put the pomelos in first and then like the clementines kind of find their way. And then similarly in life, like we have to place our big rocks first and then the little rocks kind of fall into place. And I think that sometimes in life, we're very tempted to think of marriage as a little rock that's just going to fall into place. Um, And I think that uh, you know, I think that many people who deal with, uh, well, you know, people's uh, wellness and, and the health of their relationships with their spouses will say very, very clearly that um, marriage is like one of the biggest rocks. And that's a, a rock that people need to place firmly and, and with mindfulness and intention in terms of investing in that rock, investing in their marriage. Um, now, in terms of modern day manifestations, that might have nothing, that value may have nothing to do with whether a woman is going to be shaking a lulav or not. Uh, but fundamentally, I think that, you know, rather than walking away from the Buddharham feeling disgruntled of like, oh, like talking about women as subservient to their husbands, like, what is that? Um, I would rather see that through the lens of, wow, he's saying that investing in one's marriage is really important. You know, even if we think of um, Eric Chapman's uh, five love languages and, you know, the importance of spouses filling each other's love tanks. Um, you know, again, you know, is a woman shaking her lulav going to impact her marriage? Hopefully not. Uh, hopefully only in positive ways. But uh, but still, the notion of women recognizing that if her husband's love language is quality time, then investing in, in, you know, making sure that she's spending time with her husband is really important. So that's one takeaway that I take away in terms of these Tamei Amitzvot is just like the underlying message, I think, is one that is often like quite relevant. Um, I think also with Abu Raham, I thought what was so like beautiful about it was that like it's really it's really like saying something beautiful about the Hashem is willing to forego his like respect, so to speak, for the sake of the marriage, right? And it compares it to like the water, the Sota water, where like the words of the the Torah scroll are erased, right? Hashem is willing to have his name erased for the sake of you know peace between a husband and wife. So um, I thought what was like beautiful about the Abudraham is that you know even if maybe like the practical element isn't necessarily so doesn't feel so relevant, this notion that like Hashem is saying like I'm willing for you to like not fulfill certain mitzvahs for me for the sake of, you know, giving priority to the marriage. Yeah, totally. I do. Yeah. I, yeah. Meaning that's, I, that's a, what's, what stronger message than the marriage being like the big rock that we need to put in first and recognize that it's not just something small that falls into place and knowing that, yeah, that in the Buddha words that Hashem really is like, I'm going to be mochal on, on this so that you can invest in what's, what's really important. Totally. Um, yeah, but something else that I do take away from it is, I mean, we didn't even get to this yet, but, you know, even though women are exempt from these mitzvot, uh, it is stated that women get sakhar for doing them. Almost all of them, women are encouraged to do it when they can. And um, if, it, if a person does feel like that's something that resonates with them, the notion of an exemption 
because a woman is investing in things like her marriage, if a woman is at either at a point in her life that she is not in a marriage um, and therefore doesn't need to be investing in it, or that investment uh, in the marriage that the couple is doing is not something that comes at expense of doing these mitzvot. So then, like, obviously, these are mitzvot and it's good to do mitzvot. Like, we want to be connecting to God through ways that God prescribes as being meaningful and valuable. Um, and considering that women do get sahar for these mitzvot, um, even if it's not the same sahar that a man would get, because like, we do have that knee-jerk reaction of anytime we're told what to do, there's like, eh, don't tell me what to do. Um, that's just like part of our human nature. And God acknowledges that. And uh, within the system, um, it's brought down by the sages that when people do do things that they need to do, they do get more schar because, um, you know, it's like, you know, if, if, if I ask one of my younger kids to wash the dishes and it seems like a treat because they have to stand on a chair and it seems like such a big kid thing to do, then they're very excited. But if I would say to them that they have to wash the dishes, they wouldn't be so excited anymore. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, women do get schar. It's not the same schar as men get, but it, it's, it's a right. really valid and acknowledged and like meaningful way of serving Hashem uh, to do a mitzvah. Um, and we certainly want to be serving Hashem and doing things that Hashem wants us to do. So, you know, on the one hand, there's none of that pressure and there's none of that like expectation uh, on God's side of us needing to do these mitzvot. Uh, we are exempt. But um, if we do feel like uh, we are at a point in our lives that it's something that we can do when we'll bring us closer to Hashem, then, you know, certainly like the more the merrier. All right. Cool. I'd, l- I'd love to hear your take on some of the other reasons that are given because that was the Budraham and that was a a really yeah. cool twist on it. Um, are there any other that you find um, especially meaningful? Uh, sure. That's, I mean, two others that I you know tend to speak about uh, when I teach this. One is Rav Moshe Feinstein, who speaks about um, women and the when women are blessed to have children, um, that that's something that's like a major. <laughs> that, that's a big. That's a big one. Uh, the way I don't have the text in front of me right now, but Rav Moshe uh, Feinstein, who was a rabbi in New York. Um, not, I mean, I think of it as not that long, not that long ago, but um, at the end of the 1900s, which I guess now that we're in a different millennium might sound longer ago, but it's not that long ago. Uh, so he was speaking about how women, um, women, that, that basically raising children is something that's like really important and meaningful in God's eyes. Uh, and that it might just not be fully relevant for women to be doing all the mitzvah and, you know, this type of formulation, similar to the Avudarham, not similar. It's not about the spouse. It's about the children, but similar in the sense of like, what really matters to God, like what really matters to God is, uh, is that like the women should be, uh, investing in their parenting. Now, does that mean just the mothers and not the fathers? No, but he does point out that, you know, humans, in as much as we have souls, we are also mammals. And uh, for most of the animal kingdom, um, certainly in the mammalian kingdom, uh, the mothers are just the primary caretakers. And, you know, it has to do with our natural intuition. It has to do with our hormones. It has to do with our anatomy and our physiology. Um, and it's in as much as we live in an era that women can uh, choose to pump their milk and leave the, you know, their husband or someone else to give the child that breast milk or uh, whatever other choices women could make uh, to kind of not necessarily feel like um, they are um, as biologically connected, uh, like physiologically connected to their children. And um, there's still the reality that that the world is still like this, that women are the ones who carry the pregnancy and women are the ones who have the blessing and the opportunity to be able to 
physically uh, and emotionally nurture their children in a way that that really is connected to 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 a certain sense of maternal intuition. Uh, there is something about women that is just wired to be more intuitively connected to their child in terms of assessing the child's needs, both physical and emotional. Um, and like, I think I find that very validating that, that Ramosha is like, oh, you know what, that actually is something that's really pretty uh, intense and can be very time consuming. Um, and and to me, that, that it's not even about... Um, quantity of time that a parent is spending with their child. I don't think that this is a message saying, you know, if Hashem is willing to give up on women doing their time down mitzvot, then, you know, women should be investing 100% of their time to be with their children. I don't see it that way. I think I see it more as like a, um, a that like a, a, like a priority thing. Like, where is a woman putting her main priorities in terms, like, what's her main priority in terms of, or one of, you know, what, what really matters around here. And it's not about how many moments a woman spends at home with her children. I think it's more about like the the quality of that relationship. And, you know, I think they're, they're the women who might be home all the time and, and might be very resentful about that. And other women who are home all the time with their kids and love that and are thriving. Um, and they're women who might be out of the home. And then when they're physically in the home, they're also not fully checked in. And women who are out of the home when they're out of the home, when they're in home, they're really, really present. Um, and I think that notion of like parents prioritizing being really present for their children in terms of the quality, um, not necessarily the quantity of the time, um, quantity is also meaningful, but you know, everyone figuring out what works for them so that they can really thrive as a parent and, and like prioritizing parenting is something that I think is uh, also something that, that some people might think is a little rock. Um, other times children make it very clear that they're not little rocks and they really do need a lot, a lot of attention. Um, uh, but really that place of parents working on themselves to make sure that they are nurturing their children in wholesome ways, um, not just in terms of making sure that there's food on the table, but really um, helping their children grow into uh, healthy, happy, uh, responsible members of, you know, God's people who are here to make the world a better place. And uh, so often children, like parents might feel triggered by their children, specifically by issues that the parent has that they never work through on their own or things about themselves that they have a hard time with and then they project their frustration with themselves onto their children. Um, and I think that parents working on themselves um, to make sure that, they, that they're able to show up for their kids in ways that they can be loving and accepting of them as they are and at the same time like establish clear boundaries um, that really enable the children to feel safe, but also recognize that they are, that there is a lot of room to grow and that that's the hope and the aspiration. That's something that doesn't just happen. That's something that takes a lot of work. And it's not, you know, and it's not just work. And, you know, sometimes it involves going to seek professional help and involves all sorts of things. But it's 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 something that I think that for certain parents at certain chapters in their lives can be like really all consuming. And, you know, to the extent that even if on a given day of Cholomoid, let's say, in theory, you know, a woman could be going to shul because she's off from work. And, you know, not that shul is, is inherently a time-bound mitzvah and women are chayv and tefillah anyway, but whatever the example might be that a woman might feel like they're, let's say, going to the sukkah. But, you know, if, if, um, if she's in a chapter in her life that, like, she's just feeling kind of like she needs to use all of her resources to, to you know, to be able to stay grounded and, and calm and present and, like, not screaming at her kids or not be you know whatever it is like then, then that's something that might not leave for the space to be nickeling and diming of like wait do I have the resources right now emotionally to do this mitzvah do I not um and that notion of this blanket exemption of like 
don't worry about it is something that I, that to me is something that's meaningful. And at the same time, like similar to Levi Durham's thing, like there, there are points in women's lives that they might not have that type of um, parenting responsibility. And if that's the case, then they might find that, that doing more mitzvot is something that would be meaningful to them. Um, it's not that these mitzvot aren't meaningful for women. It's just that like the, the investment in raising their kids is just something that that's just all consuming and and really important because you know ultimately i think that when we think about aspiring for mashiach to come and the world being a better place like so much of the the narratives in the nabiyam about um of like when it's all about peace it's about this it's about like everyone recognizing god um, and peace comes from a place of internal calm. It comes from a place of being able to be flexible, of being able to regulate their emotions, of being able to um, to to exhibit restraint when they're really frustrated. And these aren't things can, kids learn in school. Like these are things kids learn from the way that their parents interact with them and educate them. Um, and, and like that's really really important. Like obviously the parenting is important in terms of transmitting the masora and the and the notion of like the, the Torah that we learn from our parents, but I think also from the mothers and from the fathers, I think it's everyone, but sometimes the mothers are just around more often and sometimes mothers can um, kind of set a certain tone. Um, that place of just like, uh, like really teaching our kids the life skills and, 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 and the boundaries to really be able to make the world a better place because they can like regulate their emotions and they can be sensitive to others. They can see the person who just got onto the bus with all the grocery bags and stand up for them. Um, like that, that takes a lot of presence on the parents' part to, to show up and to model for their children. And um, so that's, that's what I take away from Rav Moshe in terms of that being a priority. The other one, which is really a, a different angle is Rav um, Shem Rafael Hirsch. Uh, who lives uh, in Germany at a time when women did begin to um, seek out more. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly about the history, but my sense, my sense is if, when he was writing this, it, uh, his writing doesn't necessarily reflect that women were immersed in secular env uh, academic environments in the same way men were. Um, but I think that, that the change kind of happens somewhat after that. But uh, he writes... Uh, first of all, he makes it very, very clear that the notion of women's exemption uh, has nothing to do with women not being as like worthy or anything like that. It may have been an idea that was going around that he felt a strong need to debunk. It's not like, you know, you have to be on a certain level to do those mitzvot and like women aren't there. He like right off the bat, he's like, it has nothing to do with that. Um, he says that he, 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 his, his understanding is that women are kind of more innately aligned with like wanting to do God's will. And the way that he explains is that it's these ritual acts that serve as constant reminders, kind of just like bringing us back, bringing us back. And like, uh, it's like, and he, he attributes it both to, to a basic like human nature thing. He finds women fundamentally able to be more present. Um, and he, and he mentions that, that men uh, stereotypically have a greater tendency to kind of wander and like lose sight on that singular focus on, on really us being here in order to serve God. And, and considering that, right, so, so there's a singular focus thing. And also he says that the men's lifestyle tends to be more distracting, that, that often men uh, find themselves in environments that, that challenge their fundamental commitment to their service of God and their, you know, 
their focus on that. So yeah, so that being said, he says, you know, women don't necessarily need these mitzvot in the same way that men do because they anyway get it. They get it that they're here to serve God and they don't need, you know, those constant tangible reminders that, that get them back on track. They don't need, you know, they don't need those types of resources. Um, so there too, like, again, you know, women's exemption is there. It just is. Um, and I think that, that many women do often feel this more inherent connection, this more just like fundamental sense of like, I'm here to be serving God. Um, other people don't, but like, that's not going to make them high of mitzvot. But what it does mean is that if doing these mitzvot could be helpful for them, then that, is probably a good thing for them to be doing. Um, I will also say that that I think that today women often do find themselves in the same types of environments that men find themselves in. And whether they innately have a more singular focus on service of God or not, being on a secular college campus, being in an, a work environment that not everyone is necessarily focused on, you know, serving God as best they can, uh, these things can be challenging and these things can really um, be distracting in terms of people remembering like what what they're really doing here in this world. Um, I know that for myself, when I was in college, I was very, one of the things I loved most about, about uh, college, there were a lot of things that were very challenging for me. I, um, but one of the things that I really appreciated was that there were Minyanim on campus and I really, I really love going to Minyan and it was very convenient to have Minyanim so close. Um, it was much closer than other places that I had to schlep in years before college in order to get to Minyan. Um, but not only Minyan, that like the fact that there were sukkahs all over campus was really great. Now, they were they weren't all over campus like there were like one or two on a campus that was you know like the, a, a sukkah could have easily been a 10 minute walk from where i was when i wanted to be eating but i made a point when i was in college um to to eat in a sukkah because yeah true i'm a woman and i'm not high of but i'm on this campus just like everyone else this is not like a chalamoid when i'm like on to limb with my family i'm here sitting in classes along with everyone else learning about things that are not necessarily directly connected to uh torah or judaism or god I just felt a really strong need to to be able to keep myself grounded and connected through being really mockbit to um, hold myself to that standard of eating in a sukkah. Um, did I need to do that? No. Was it very, very meaningful for me? Yes. Um, I'm grateful I wasn't high up because like, you know, I mean, this, what does it mean I'm grateful I wasn't high up? I'm grateful God, you know, shasani cared so no and like things are as they are. Um, but like, it's not like I felt a sense of resentment. Like, how come God didn't make me high up? Like, for whatever reasons, God didn't make me high up. But um, we, like, I certainly have the opportunity. And I feel like uh, when we can take advantage of those opportunities to be doing mitzvot um, or when we feel like they'll help us, they'll, they'll help us stay grounded. They'll help us remember what we're doing here in this world. And I think that that meets vote are a, like a great way that God prescribed in terms of connecting with him. I'm a fan of other things also that 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 women can do in order to be, con, you know, connecting with God that are not necessarily concretely meets vote, um, like going on nature hikes and like have having the intense like, wow, Marabu Hashem experience of just being blown away by the. Um, the magnitude of the of the details and the grandeur of, of God's creation that totally makes us feel closer to God. But like, I don't think it's instead of things like that. I think it's great to be pursuing ways to feel closer to God. But when we have actual mitzvot that we know um, are significant, we know that on a technical level we're getting schar for them. That's recognized that they're meaningful for women. Uh, we we know that we have no clue that, that what it means to be doing a mitzvah in terms of the ramifications in 
like all of these realms that we just have no grasp of. Um, so yeah, if we could be, do, be doing mitzvot and it, it works with our service of God. So, you know, I, I'm totally a fan. I like something that concerns me sometimes about like women's exemption from time down mitzvot is that I think it gets blown out of proportion. Like I, 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 I've encountered girls and women from different backgrounds with this kind of apathy of like, oh, you know, you know, I don't need to like, and, and again, it's not technically a time bound mitzvah, but the notion of going to shul, let's say on Shabbat, um, if a person lives in a place that there's a women's section. So I think for, not for all, but for many women going to shul on Shabbat, A, it affords the opportunity to hear the Parsha. It affords the opportunity to answer to, to um, the Dvaram Shabbat like Baruch and Kaddish and Kedusha. Um, it, there's all these metaphysical, like these meta issues of uh, con- these meta values uh, of uh, tefillah, all of everyone's tefillah with all, everyone's tefillah all their merits going up to, to God, kind of metaphorically in one bundle. Um, and also just carving out the amount of time, sitting there for two hours or whatever it is in shul, you know, hopefully it will be a more meaningful or invested or mindful experience than whatever few minutes a person would be davening at home. Um, and I think that that sometimes like the notion of the fact that there's this like amorphous like exemption out there sometimes leaves women feeling kind of apathetic about that sense of like I am going to be passionate about my service of God and again women are high of in because um, in as much as it's time bound uh, the Gebarah basically says who it's like a calling out to God for mercy and it's like a basic human need and like how could any human being not not be doing that so women are high of in tefillah, um, and the yeah like the, this this notion of apathy of like oh you know i'm a woman i don't need to be doing anything that's not true at all it's like of course we need to be doing so many things um and our passion about our vote is something that that is is just as critical as it would be as it would be for a man so you know the the actual scope of the things that women are technically exempt from are so few um and many of them only come up like a few times a year um and the only time bound mitzvot that women are discouraged from doing in our sources are tzitzit and and uh, tzitzit and talit is in one category and tefillin is another. Um, but everything else is just like really considered a positive thing to do. And most of the things we end up doing in life are actually not time bound mitzvot at all. And 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 I w- it concerns me if the notion that there is an exemption out there for women from some things brings on a certain sense of apathy. Um, and just like a, a lower degree of, of passion and feeling like God really cares for me to be pushing myself to be doing my best. Of course, God cares for me to be pushing myself to be doing my best. It might not look exactly like it does for a man who might be high and other certain specific things. Um, and it might actually look very similar to what it's looking like for a man who's high and other specific things. Uh, but the notion of us pushing ourselves... Um, also knowing how to rest, like that's part of our pushing ourselves is sometimes pushing ourselves to the rest. But the notion of, of by pushing, I just mean the sense of like, uh, of having a real awareness that we're here to serve God as best we can. And we want to always be mindful about at different junctions in our life, how can we be taking advantage of, of opportunities and creating opportunities for optimal service of God in this world? Wow, cool. So, so I feel like you've spoken about this a lot, um, over the course of this discussion, but I wonder if you can just go back to the sources for a minute and like talk about. So we know that women are exempt from Mrs. Asisha's mangrama, but where do we see? Um, like, is there any discussion about whether or not women are allowed to do them? Like, is there any reason that we would say that they shouldn't? And you mentioned there's like two two specific mitzvahs that we say women are discouraged from doing. So what makes those different? Um, and then also, 
let's say if women are performing them voluntarily, does that have the value of a mitzvah? Like you mentioned, there could be lots of things that women choose to do, like going on a nature walk or whatever that might help her, you know, feel more connected to Hashem, but that doesn't make it a mitzvah. So when women are voluntarily performing these mitzvahs, I think this is something which a lot of women sort of struggle with is like, what's the meaning of that act or what's the value of that act? Is it just something I'm doing because it feels good to me or does it actually have the objective value of a mitzvah? Great. Uh, yeah. So first of all, in terms of the sources, and yeah, I'll, I'll answer your first question first. So in terms of the of the sources connected to women voluntarily doing time bound mitzvot and whether that would be okay or not, there are two different instances in the Gemara that they mention these optional things. One of them is actually not a time bound mitzvah. One of them is, and and the one that is, you know, so the Gemara associates it with this other machloket. So that first machloket is connected to in the times of the Mikdash, if women were able to do smicha the korbanot, a part of the process of bringing a korban was leaning on the korban. Um, I don't know enough about taharot to accurately say exactly why that was, and you know, there was some type of uh, a physical connection of the person bringing the korban with the korban. Um, and there's a machloket there in the Gemara. If the, I'm sorry, I don't have the sources in front of me. I don't remember the exact location. Um, but the machloket in the Gemara about whether women can do smichan an animal or not if the korban is being brought um, and one of the opinions says that women should not and the other opinion says that women may uh, that it's permissible to um, and they actually bring a little anecdote there that um that some that one of the earlier stages had shared that they remember a time that they brought the the korban to the azara where the where the women were um and the women did smicha on it and it said not because um women can do smicha, meaning smicha is an, an, an integral part of the korban bringing process. And if a woman does the smicha, that you can't like check off on the list of korban prerequisites that the smicha has been done because it doesn't count in that way. Um, so, but nonetheless, the women were doing smicha, it says there, it's like an interesting source in the Mishnah where we have this notion of like a feel good, um, you know, this notion of like, this is something that's part of our Masora. And as much as women aren't chayav, we get it that there's like a ritual experiential component to bringing the korban. And for women to be able to tap into that physically is something that, that was seen as meaningful. So that was a machloket there about women, whether women may not do smicha or whether they could do it in a voluntary way. And then elsewhere in the Gemara, there's a question about whether... Um, in terms of shofar blowing. So shofar is also technically a, a time bound mitzvah that women are technically exempt from. Children are also exempt from, from mitzvot. Um, and then there's, there's this whole question in the Gemara about women, if a child were to be blowing a shofar on Shabbos or Yantif, you know, we, we don't necessarily think today of a shofar as a musical instrument, although I was once at a wedding where one of the musicians was blowing a shofar, like one of those long, long, very looking ones um but the the notion of blowing a shofar <laughs> is essentially like playing an instrument and we don't play musical instruments on on shabbos or yantif uh, so then it becomes this question of like well let's say a child is blowing a shofar on shabbos or yantif would you discourage them for doing that um would you discourage a woman from doing that and it says it's there's the source there is that um that the, the children are not discouraged from blowing. And the assumption there is that there's a chinuch element there, meaning considering that uh, that on Yantif, the shofar is generally blown by adults. So if a child is blowing, a uh, male child, and they'll be chayav, so, so they can be practicing, as it were. Um, and the, the Gemara assumes that since the, that Tanaitic source, I, I'm pretty sure it was a bright uh, 
um, I'm, I'm, I don't I don't want to misquote historically exactly when it was from, but since that source, uh, uh, spoke specifically about children, uh, they assumed that that meant that since you wouldn't stop the children, uh, they they inferred from that that you would stop the women from blowing. And then they quote a different writer, uh, another text from Times of the Mishnah that says that we don't stop the women or the children from blowing. Um, and that seems like a kind of discrepancy between like the inference that was made from one source that just addressed children and the other one that addressed women explicitly saying that they would not stop women from blowing the shofar either, uh, which does make it sound like, and as much as women might not be high of a blowing shofar, that if they were to be doing it and they're doing it on Yentif, that that for them too might be of, of uh, would be considered of religion, enough religious significance that we wouldn't consider it like playing an instrument in, in a prohibited way. Um, and since there are those two different opinions there, and the Gemara, the Gemara says that those two opinions align with the two opinions coming from the smicha conversation in terms of the animals, where, you know, in this realm of halacha, where there are things that women are not obligated in, this whole question of whether they may or may not do it is something that's subject to a machloket, where one opinion says no, and the other opinion says yes, well, they actually may. Now, the later commentaries there, I, th I think it's Rashi who says that, that uh, the reasoning behind saying women wouldn't be able to do these things is that it may be considered a prohibition of, of baltosif, of, of adding on more, like adding on more mitzvot than God prescribes for us to do. And I'm, it's escaping me right now, the, the commentary that addresses this Rashi and says that, that it is, you know, that in his humble opinion, like that's not how we understand the baltosif prohibition. The baltosif prohibition is when we change the mitzvot and we add on to them from the, you know, we take the specific mitzvot that God prescribed and we change them by adding on to them. Like if with my four, my Arab, Arba meaning with the lulav, where I have my lulav, my etrog, my hadassim, and my aravot on, on Sukkot, if I would want to add in, you know, a twig of lavender because I liked how it smelled and I liked how it looked, that would be baltosif. Like when we take the four minim, we take the four minim. Or if we if we love sleeping in the sukkah, I know our family think like I I love sukkahs. We our whole all of us. I mean our we our custom is to sleep in the sukkah also, and like the whole family, men, women, children, we all, uh, we all sleep out there and we love it, but it would be baltosif if we would, if we would continue our little camp out sleeping in the sukkah for an additional night, because we're taking a specific mitzvah and we're adding on to the mitzvah. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, it's escaping me right now who, who says this about Rashi, but he says it's like when Rashi calls a woman doing a prescribed mitzvah as it is prescribed by God, baltosif, that's just not an accurate, um, it's not accurate. Like the, the problem there is not baltosif. It must be something else that was bothering the opinions in the Gemara um, and in the Mishnah that women shouldn't be doing certain mitzvot. And, and the, the conclusion come, that they come to there is that the, you know, again, there were two opinions there in that machloket. One side said it's totally fine for we for women to be doing these mitzvot, and the other side had this reluctance of saying women shouldn't. And and it emerges that that the only mitzvot that there's an opinion that says that women shouldn't is when there's some type of underlying prohibition um, that might be involved there in terms of women doing these mitzvot. So with with the smicha, with the korban, leaning on the korban, there's an underlying prohibition of people using a korban, which is considered with having a certain degree of sanctity, using it for their own personal desires or like leaning on it, like, you know, th things like that. If it's not part of the mitzvah, then that's actually considered prohibited. Um, and in terms of the shofar, we mentioned the underlying prohibition of like playing a musical instrument on, on Shabbos. Yes, it was an underlying prohibition. So if you have a mitzvah to be doing something and or a chiyav, right, to be doing something, so then that 
like covers up the potential prohibition. The example that comes to my mind from a different context is the notion of Brit Milah. Generally, you can't make something someone or like you can't you can't shed blood on 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 Shabbat. Like you can't cut flesh. Uh, but if the eighth day from when a child is born, which is the day that the circumcision is supposed to happen, if that falls out on Shabbat, so that chiyuv supersedes the underlying prohibition. So so, so that really is what. Um, in that machloket of whether of whether women could be doing these time bound sport or not, it, um, it's so again one opinion was totally fine with it, but the opinion that was reluctant was reluctant because they were concerned that if a woman isn't chayav in this mitzvah, then maybe it doesn't um, supersede the underlying prohibition. It's like I'm thinking of like a deck of cards. We have this like one card game. I forgot what it's called, but it's it has these um, clear playing cards with these different shapes on it. And when you layer them on top of each other, you kind of like see concentric circles. And like when I think about regular opaque playing cards with, uh, you know, aces and spades and whatever. So if you have a card in your pile, then you cover it up with another card like that. You've covered up the bottom card. So if the bottom card is a prohibition and the top card is the mitzvah, so the mitzvah covers up the prohibition. But if for women who aren't chayv in these mitzvot, it's like their playing card, as it were, was a, one of those clear playing cards. The game was called Swish. Now I remember. So if they put one of those clear transparent cards on top of an opaque underlying prohibition card, um, so then you still see the prohibition, right? So, so that's really the question. Now it ends up being that now I'll point out that even for that opinion that's reluctant about do, women doing mitzvot in cases of underlying prohibitions, that is still um, not having any reluctance about women doing something when there's no underlying prohibition. There's no underlying prohibition shaking a lulav in an etrog. There's no underlying prohibition sitting in a sukkah, etc. So when there's no underlying prohibition, no earlier authority uh, was concerned, and there are no earlier sources that express concern. And um, later on. One of the Rishonim, in my mind right now, it's the Ritva, I think does does say explicitly, not only that it's permissible for women be, to be doing things, but that yes, indeed, they do get sahar. So what you were asking, you know, that brings us to your second question, Hazasa, like, if a woman does do these mitzvot, is it just the same as going on a nature walk? Meaning, yes, nice way to connect to God, but like not actual mitzvah that's counted, you know, going to be counted, whatever that means, if, you know, the notion of something that's being counted. It's certainly counted. Um, doing a mitzvah, uh, a mitzvah that says, counts as a mitzvah. And uh, women do get schar for it. And as I mentioned before, the schar is, I, I know, you know, I don't think we can understand what this means in terms of quantitative or qualitative schar for doing mitzvot, but the notion of women getting schar for these mitzvot, they certainly do. It's less schar than a man uh, would get because uh, this notion of gadol meaning when people do things that they're commanded to do, it's actually harder emotionally um, for them to be doing them. So when women aren't obligated and they're choosing to do it, uh, they you know, they just get less schar. But it, it certainly, certainly counts as a mitzvah. And I'll say one step further, there is a machloket about whether women would say a bracha on, on these mitzvot or not, um, since they're not actually obligated. And the, uh, the Ashkenazim, based on Tosvot, you know, they're, 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 to the best of my knowledge, there's no earlier discussion uh, earlier than the Rishonim about whether women would say brachot on these mitzvot or not. Uh, Tosvot says that women would make brachot on these mitzvot. And the Rambam says that women would not make brachot. And, and it seems within the Sephardic tradition, people get very nervous about bracha levatala and saying God's name in vain, even in the context of a bracha. And considering that um, 
basically the argument there is, you know, how can a woman say, like, how could a woman say that she was commanded to do this mitzvah if she wasn't actually commanded to do this mitzvah? So Sephardic women, uh, when they, let's say, are counting spirit Omer, they're not going to make um, a bracha on that. They're still going to count Omer, hopefully, you know, they don't need to, but it's certainly a mitzvah. Ashkenazi women would say a bracha because, you know, the argument explains, uh, based, you know, explaining Tosfo's opinion is that, you know, well, the the collective vitzivanu is like us as a people. And there's this sense of like, okay, God commanded the men to be doing these things. And the women also get sahar. So therefore, they're included in the in the larger uh, population of people who can say vitzivanu, meaning the men were commanded, the women get sahar. So it's like one big happy mitzvah family. Um, so women do say a bracha. But whether a woman is Sephardic or Ashkenazic, when she says, you know, counts Sfirat HaOmer in those days between Pesach and Shavuos, she is getting a mitzvah, whether she said a bracha or not. Um, brachot are a nice mindfulness opportunity. And if a woman follows Sephardic custom and is looking for that mindfulness opportunity, she can just take a minute and in her own heart or in her own words, um, acknowledge the, the blessing uh, that it is to be part of our people and have the opportunity to do mitzvot. Um, but fundamentally, women certainly get schar, whether they're saying a bracha or not. And it, it really does have significance. And women are hopefully searching for meaningful interactions uh, with uh, community, doing ritual things in order to be serving God. Um, and I think it's, it's really helpful to recognize that things that actually count as a mitzvah really count, <laughs> it, you know, in terms of being things that are objectively uh, desirable in God's eyes. Now, again, not if it's at the expense of something else. Like when I think about, you know, the, there were a few years when on Sukkot, we did not have our own sukkah when my kids were younger and the closest sukkah was quite a walk. Um, and I had young kids and I did not always eat in a sukkah. In contrast to my college years when I was like heading across campus, rain or shine, um, I did like when I had young kids at home, I was not eating in a sukkah because like that notion of having to get those little kids out the door and up all the steps or down all the steps or wherever it was, there were different points in life that it was like this. Um, it just didn't make sense. It would have led to a lot of resentment on my part, on my children's part, right? So I don't think it's like mitzvot at all cost when we're not chayav, right? There's like, if we're not chayav, we need to be mindful about how we can serve God as best we can. But when we are seeking out ritual opportunities to be doing things that feel meaningful, I'm a fan for gravitating toward the things that actually count as a mitzvah. Um, you know, if I can get out of my house on a Friday night, I, I, you know, and as much as there might be something beautiful and meaningful about women gathering in another woman's home to have a Kabbalah Shabbat singing together, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that for people to be singing Prakim of Tehillim together. That's a beautiful thing. Me personally, I would rather like go to a shul where I'm actually halachically, uh, you know, involved in Tefillah B'tzibor and the, you know, the, where I can answer to different types of, of prayers that can't be said just in the presence of women, etc. And uh, so I am a fan of people, women recognizing that even when they're not high of these things certainly count as mitzvot. And if we're seeking out meaningful opportunities um, that are specifically ritual in nature, you know, going on a nature walk is not ritual in nature. Um, and it's something that's meaningful and I, it's something I make time to do. I think it's really important. Um, but when but when seeking out things that are specifically ritual and religious in nature, I'm a fan of women doing things that actually count as mitzvot as opposed to things that are like 
pseudo, you know, they look like things that men are doing, but actually don't count. It actually does count when women do I'll just like to just follow up about the two areas that there's like, you know, that there's discouragement of women doing. The reason that women are discouraged from wearing tefillin uh, is the, is the notion of um, basically because of tefillin sanctity, there's uh people have to be very careful when they're wearing them not to do anything that could be considered a disgrace. Um, and it says in the sources that uh, it's necessary for a person wearing tefillin to have a goof naki, which technically translates to clean body. Um, and it doesn't seem that it has, uh, it's unclear to what extent it might have to do with cleanliness or with the ritual status, but uh, one of the really prevalent understandings of the term is that it has to do with flatulence with passing gas, which is something that people often can't necessarily control. Um, and if a person were to pass gas, while they were wearing their tefillin, that would be considered a desecration of the tefillin. So since men are obligated to be wearing tefillin, at least for a certain you know, part of, of prayer, uh, so they do it and they risk the notion of potentially disgracing the, the tefillin because they don't really have, I mean, we always have free choice. That's how our religion works. But if they want to be keeping the mitzvah, they don't have much choice. They can't really just say like, no, I'm not going to wear them. So they wear them as little as they can, and they're super careful. But considering that women aren't obligated, the notion of a woman choosing to opt in to be doing a mitzvah she's not obligated in when she could end up, you know, passing gas and and therefore um, doing something that's considered inappropriate uh, when wearing tefillin, that's basically a risk that um, that uh, women are discouraged from taking. Because again, this is really about service of God. It's not about what feels good to us. And it's uh, hopefully service of God will feel good to us. But uh the, the notion of, uh, of, of doing our learning and knowing our recently, having done our research so that we understand halachically what isn't, isn't meaningful and significant, I think it help inform our practice. The issue with tzitzit and, and talit is kind of a different type of category. Um, like there, it's not something that's inherently incumbent upon all people to do. And as much as today it is common practice for men to be doing, it's if a person is wearing a four-cornered garment, so then they should be affixing these fringes to the corners of, of the garment. So in order for men to do this mitzvah, they specifically go out and they buy what we call tzitzit, but it's basically a four-cornered garment. And then the, the tzitzit are affixed to that four-cornered garment. Uh, the two different reasons that are brought down discouraging women. And again, I don't want to use the word prohibiting, certainly not for tzitzit and tzitzit. And like, I think, it's, I think we need to be careful in terms of of just being accurate about these types of things but the there is certainly a discourage like women are discouraged from from talit and and um tzitzit either um the you know the notion of yuharaz brought down like this notion of of the opposite of humility of a certain sense of hubris uh um, it seems that there is this concern since it's not something commonly done by women and it's not something that's inherently op it's not something that's an inherent mitzvah, you know, once, once uh, Sukkot rolls around, so there's an inherent mitzvah for every person to take those four species. Once it's Sfirah Omer, so there's inherent mitzvah to be kept in Sfirah Omer, but there isn't necessarily an inherent mitzvah to be wearing talit or, or, or tzitzit in the same way. Um, so then the notion of, of, a, of a woman obtaining such a garment and wearing tzitzit publicly is something that some would be concerned to be uh, um, like a, a certain sense of, of conveying a message that I'm so accomplished at all the other mitzvot that I'm doing and I'm already like bored from my mitzvah performance and I'm seeking out additional things that are generally not done uh, by by women. That's something that that the sources are, are concerned about from a, um, you know, from a humility perspective. Uh, and another reason that that's brought down is the potential concern that we're dealing here with Begad Ish that, you know, and that's also beyond the scope of this conversation, but the, 
the whole question of of what uh, of uh, the, the prohibition in the Torah of men wearing women's garments or women's wearing, wearing men's garments or other types of accessories, um, armor, etc. There's a whole debate and discussion about what what falls into that category. Um, the translation there uh, translates, as it were, every translation is interpretation, but it explains uh, the words in the Torah of Beged Ish as being um, as being tzitzit uh, or talit and or tefillin, and that's um, that for some is an additional concern. But those are really the only two that there is any reluctance about, um, and all the other ones, it's just they're they're mitzvot, and it's great to do mitzvot when when they're not um, when they're not standing in, in the way of women doing other things that they need to be doing in order to be serving God holistically as best they can. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think what's so interesting is that, I mean, a few things, a few comments on what you've been saying, but one is that this idea of like how powerful it is that this idea of nachas ruach and Hashem, like this idea of women doing the voluntarily, like that having like real halachic weight. Like, I think it was for me, it was really fascinating to see how like the halachic like sources actually like reference that as like a reason for women to take these mitzvahs really seriously. Um, and then also this notion of like the bracha that like the fact that, you know, for sure in Ashkenazi circles, women are encouraged to make a bracha. Um, and this idea of vitzivanu, like we could say vitzivanu because like we are included in that general commandment, even if we're not like specifically obligated in this specific act. I think that it, it is interesting that in our contemporary world where in a lot of communities, people very much associate um, a really significant portion of their Judaism as being the communal element, specifically like the shul centric element. I think that sometimes those things stand out a lot to women, like the notion, not just of Talit and Tfilin, but also the question of like, who's leading the Tfilot, who's counting for a minion. Like, I think those things can end up feeling big in a world where we really, you know, for, for, for good and for bad in many ways for good that, that our, our Jewish life has such a strong, like shul centric um, vibe to it. Um, and then we'll, but when we take a step back from that and we recognize that ultimately what God wants from each of us, men or women, is to really just be serving God as best we can to be, you know, as, as that manifests itself through doing mitzvot, personal growth, sharing our unique, you know, the, the unique prism that each of us are to share God's light in the world. Like it's about so much more than what's going on in the synagogue for a few hours um, a day or a week. And, um, and I think that for those who do feel um, a certain sense of, of frustration with the those specific, you know, areas where women are, you know, either, you know, th that those are not part of, of our contemporary uh, religious life. Um, I think that taking a step back and taking a deep breath and being like, wait a second, like, what am I actually doing here? And um, whatever I'm feeling that's missing, what other ways can I be um filling that void um, and what is actually bothering me and and really how can I be thriving in my Avozad Hashem considering the, the current reality of, of the world that we're living in. <laughs> <laughs>